The, the title uh, of my talk is, as um, Clive has given it, it is Dickens' uh, points of view. But by points of view, I don't mean opinions. I'm actually interested in what people who work in film call POV, point of view. And that hence the title of my PowerPoint, which is the title of a longer version of this talk, which talks in its second half about cinematic adaptations of Dickens. But in fact, my real interest in this subject is in this part of the talk, and that is about, if you'll forgive me the, the paradox, it's about what is cinematic in Dickens, what aspects of Dickens may seem to be cinematic. Now we have a language of cinema. And indeed, and I'll try and get to talk about this at the end, what, what aspects of Dickens are more cinematic often than film adaptations of Dickens, i.e. the way that filmmakers often don't exploit uh, the visuality. Now, you will have heard a lot of talk in this bicentenary year about Dickens and cinema. Indeed, there was a, a BBC special on it. Uh, there's been a special season of films at the uh, BFI, and a few months ago, rather suspiciously, uh, the, the earliest ever um, piece of Dickens on film was discovered from 1901. I mean, discovered, it turns out it was always in the BFI archive, but they'd lost it and then managed to rediscover it in the bicentenary, but, but fair enough. Um, it's very typical of early um, Dickens on film, which is very, very short, and it went as Dickens himself did in his dramatizations of his own work, in his public readings, for the mo most emotionally heightened scenes. It wasn't very interested in narrative or story, it was interested in spills and thrills, and it was the death of little Joe from Bleak House, that one of the most tear-jerking um, 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 parts of, 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 actually of anywhere in Dickens. I remember reading it as an undergraduate and having tears in my eyes that I had to hide from the university football team <laughs> later that, that afternoon. Um, and the, these scenes often attracted early filmmakers. Um, now usually discussions of Dickens and film focus on the general idea that in Dickens it's the excitement of the plots and the distinctive characterization that made Dickens ideal for cinema. That was certainly the thrust of, I think, the, the recent B, uh, BBC documentary. But actually, in this talk, I want to look at a, a more technical uh, side of Dickens, although, as you'll see, um, th there's a way that you can play games with this. And indeed, you might keep hold of your handout, because one of the things I want to encourage you to do is you can play a game with these passages uh, with a highlighter pen in relation to points of view. Uh, so what I want to think about Edmund Dickens that, that, that makes him intrinsic to filmmaking, and that is the question of point of view. That is the question of where is the camera and whose point of view are you getting? Um, I think it's often assumed that, um, you know, that, 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 that the idea of cutting between scenes from different perspectives is something that's intrinsic to the technology of cinema. But in fact, cinema, but in fact, uh, several early filmmakers said that they learnt to cut from reading Dickens. Um, indeed, this point was made by the Soviet filmmaker Sergei Eisenstein in the essay uh, translated uh, as Dickens, Griffiths and Film Today from 1944. Uh, what has become the key text in the lengthy tradition of speculation on the relationship between Dickens and cinema. And Eisenstein himself was responding to comments made by one of the founding fathers of American filmmaking, D.W. Griffiths, who actually made one Dickens film. He made, a, he made a film version of Dickens' short story, The Cricket on the Hearth. But actually, more importantly, Griffiths acknowledged more generally that that was often seen as his 
path, uh, groundbreaking contribution to cinema, which was cross-cutting, was something he derived from reading Dickens's novels. That cutting between plot lines uh, was something he learned from Dickens. Now, most of the analysis of Eisenstein's essay does focus on this question of cutting between plots. But in fact, he points out that the point of view in Dickens is rather more complex than simply cutting between plots. There are questions I've suggested about where the camera is and other kinds of effects, even within particular uh, scenes. And indeed, uh, Eisenstein's essay implies that his own very sophisticated technique, a montage, which is famous from films like Battleship Potemkin, was indeed building on techniques that you find in um, Dickens's novels. Um, and Eisenstein's technique, the technique of montage, calls to mind the kind of change of perspective Dickens often does in rapid fire in, in scenes like the interplay between Fagin and the landlord in The Three Cripples passage in Oliver Twist, which is the first scene on your handout. Uh, but I'm not going to go there yet. What I, what I would like to point out, though, is another particular scene uh, indicated by um, Eisenstein, which is this one from A Tale of Two Cities, about which Eisenstein said um, um, that it was, if this was anything, it was a dissolve. Now, a dissolve in cinema, you'll, you'll know, is where a frame, a frame on the scene actually has a frame emerge from behind it, as it were, to take over it, so it emerges from within it. This is the scene when um, Sidney Carton, near the end of A Tale of Two Cities, is in the cart being taken to the guillotine. And Dickens writes, six tumbrils roll along the streets, change these back again to what they were, thou powerful enchanted time, and they shall be seen to be the carriages of absolute monarchs, the equipages of feudal nobles, the toilettes of fleering Jezebels. What Dickens is getting you to do, and it's interestingly, and, and, and this is an interesting part of this technique in terms of the manipulation of reader sympathies. There's a reading of Teletus Cities, which is it's a kind of version of a Scarlet Pimpernel, and we're meant to admire sort of staunch English values against the kind of bestial terror of the French. And so if you simply have Carton going to his heretic, heretic moment of doing something far, far better now than he had ever done before, that's going to confirm that if that's simply what's in your eye. But what, what, happen, what happens at this moment is that the moment that Sidney's in, in, the, in the cart, um, that from the past becomes an image from very early in the book where the French aristocrats have been driving their carriages over the bodies of the children. So even at this moment of terror, you're being asked to think about where the terror has come from. So there's a merging of times. And Eisenstein saw that as a dissolve. This is a dissolve where the present moment has a moment from the past merging from it. And it's that kind of, it's, it's that kind of effect to which uh, Eisenstein said, how, how many such cinematic surprises must be hiding in Dickens's pages? And, it, and, and it's some of those uh, effects I want to talk about today. Although I've said, once you, I think you get into this, if you do, you can play this game with reading whatever Dickens novel uh, you're reading, looking for this kind of effect. Before we come to those, um, political, uh, those examples, um, it should be said that the visual nature of Dickens' imagination was noticed from very early on by his contemporaries. His friend, for instance, the actor McCready, credited him with what was called, he called a clutching eye. Uh, and other, others among his contemporaries described him as possessing a power of observation 
so enormous that he could photograph almost everything he saw. Indeed, I think I say this in the book, I'm not sure there's another writer who uses the word I as a verb quite as much as Dickens does. Okay, the, the idea of people eye each other all the time, which is a very intrusive word, version of the word look. You, know, you get a very strong emphasis on the fact of looking. You know. Things don't just happen, they are being looked at and recorded all the time. But I emphasise it's the use of the word verb. As, as usual, when you say something like that, there's always a smarty-pants student who goes and checks it on the web. And he, uh, I think he called, up, he called up all the novels of Trollope online and all, the, and all the novels of Dickens online and searched and pointed out that Trollope uses the word I 25 times more than Dickens. But unfortunately, the point is, it's when Dickens uses the word as a verb that's remarkable. That, as with many students, grammar was not the, the thing he was really thinking about. I shouldn't say anything um, so rude. Um, for instance, though, in Oliver Twist, Bumble eyed the building where he meets monks with very rueful looks. And taken up by Fagin, Noah Clay Claypole is eyeing his new friends with mingled fear and suspicion. And the prevalence of such words in such relatively insignificant moments, I think, builds up incrementally the strong sense of characters being look, looking and being looked at. That everything that happens is being produced by a rapid exchange of glances, of looks. Focalization, point of view, can rapidly change even within a single chapter or even passage, often creating a kind of dizziness in the reader. And indeed, this is what um, Eisenstein called the head-spinning tempo of changing impressions. And indeed, uh, what Eisenstein's getting at, that, at there is a, um, a phenomenon commented on by many sociologists of the 19th century. And that is the idea that this is the, the beginning of the society, if you like, we now live in, where you're suddenly bombarded by images wherever you go. You know, the, the, we walk out into the street and we're being hit by visual phenomena all the time in a very rapid uh, way. And in some senses, that's registered by Dickens's fiction, I think. There is a sense of being bombarded uh, by impressions. Indeed, Dickens was aware of criticism his writing was getting from early on by having too many rapid transitions. And he even defended them um, in uh, this passage from one of the early numbers of Oliver Twist. He's, re he's reacting to responses to the early separate parts. And he said, the actors in the mimic life of the theater are blind to violent transitions and abrupt impulses of passions of feeling, which presented before the eyes of mere spectators are at once condemned as outrageous and preposterous. Now his point in this passage is really about changes of tone from comedy and tragedy. But I think the, the, the interesting thing is presented before the ideas of the spectators. The idea of rapid changes in points of view is very foundational to the way Dickens uh, writes. They're not just a question of changes of tone or switches between comedy and tragedy, but um, the way people look and where they're looking from. Let me give you um, an example. Um, this is a scene in which Fagin makes his way into a tavern which is crowded. Right? And the kind of thing I want you to think about is it was curious to observe. Right? Now, we've been tracking Fagin, and the question that immediately opens up is, it was curious to observe, meaning if we are the detached camera up in the roof, is it curious to emerge, is it curious to observe this scene with Fagin in it? Or does this imply it was curious for Fagin to observe as he moved into the room? Do you see the, the distinction? One of which has the camera 
on Fagin's shoulders or in his head, if you like. The other one has the camera up there and has Fagin himself in the scene. It, it, that one is undecidable. Um, what, what's definitely the case is that the vocabulary of looking is omnipresent in the scene, in everything seeing a question of somebody's perspective. So when Fagin steps into the room, the reader seems to have his point of view. Although, as in a carnival mirror, this point of view is actually distorted. Some things loom larger than others. And as the list of these sites begins, the point of view seems to switch to the landlord, who we're told has an, eye, has an eye and ear for everything going on in the scene, i.e., as soon as it mentions the landlord's eyes rolling hither and thither, is everything we're told afterwards what is registered on those eyes? Or are we still with that camera up there, which is seeing the landlord in the scene as well. It is, after all, the landlord's attention, we're told, that is caught by the singers and their admirers. But it could still be Fagin who is registering the details of the singers, or it could also be the camera, as it were, pulling back and giving us a more detached point of view. But it's hardly what, what militates about thinking of being the last is the word you, where the reader seems to get involved in the scene through direct address, so close to what's called the dreary picture rather than allowing us the distance of a detached observer. That is, we seem to be in the middle of the action. The final sh short paragraph seems to resolve these things by bringing the point of view back to Fagin as he moves from face to face and then succeeds in meeting the eye of the landlord. And then again, you get that idea of this scene is made up by exchanges of glances, people catching each other's eyes. Um, so then, as, as though he moves from face to face and then meets the eye of the landlord from which the scene, a sentence or so before, had seemed to be viewed. The sense is of a welter of impressions, of rapid transformations of point of view and crossfire of glances from different places. Um, and interestingly, I, and I'll, if I have time, I'll come back to Lean's film. Unfortunately, I, I couldn't show a real-time movie, but... Interestingly, David Lean's version of Oliver Twist, which is one of the few movie adaptions who, is who catches on to this aspect of Dickens, rapid-fire glances, um, he, he conflates this scene with another one in The Three Cripples, but only in, order, in, in a way he's not true to the text in that sense, but he is true technically in the text, and then he makes it a scene that's all about exchange of uh, glances. He actually conflates it with a later scene in which Bill and Nancy are present, and even this still gives you that Dickensian sense of, you know, every, there's a ricocheting, everybody's looking at everybody else, looking at everybody else. And indeed, if I might be given for a, um, um, a flippant remark, I think one of, the, one of the ways Lean grabs this is by his casting. Those of you who are old enough will recognize this actor as Robert Newton, who's, who is actually the originator of the old, ha-ha, Jim Malad from Treasure, Treasure Island. And... and um, Robert Newton was not a subtle realist actor. What he is, is a brilliant eye actor. He's an actor who is all that, I mean, even in that scene you can see, big eyes is what Robert Newton is going for. And there's somehow, that, that one of the things that casting brilliantly does is cast an actor for whom we are aware of his eyes all the time. And the eyeing seems at the very uh, forefront of, um, um, of Lean's version of Dickens. This aspect of Dickens, I think, is also present in the scene that um, most shocked contemporaries, which is shocked in the sense that by Dickens, as it were, it's written what you might call tight in, in a congested uh, close-up 
um, shot. This is the death of Nancy when she's beaten to death by a lover, Bill Sykes. The housebreaker freed one arm and grasped his pistol. The certainty of immediate detection if he fired flashed across his mind, even in the midst of his fury, and he beat it twice with all the force he could summon upon the upturned face that almost touched his own. She staggered and fell, nearly blinded with the blood that rained down from a deep gash in her forehead, but raising herself with difficulty on her knees, drew from her bosom a white handkerchief. There's a point there where you've got a camera removed, although even as the objective third-person narrator, not very removed, you're very tight into the action. You've got his point of view flashed across his mind eye. You've got the interruption, not just of what he's seeing, but the idea of what he might be seeing. And then you've got her perspective. She was nearly blinded. You're being asked to think of her view up as she's being struck, where she can hardly see. Although the question of characters giving characters point of view, but then blocking that point of view is one if this time I'll, I'll return to. Uh, and she says she drew, she drew from her bosom a white handkerchief, Rose Maley's own, and holding it in her folded hands as high towards heaven as her feeble strength would let her, breathed one prayer for mercy to her maker. It was a ghastly figure to look upon. The murderer staggering backward to the wall and shutting out the sight with his hand, seized a heavy club and struck her down. Even there, in that, those last two sentences, it was a ghastly sight to look upon. I think when you first read that, it's no doubt that is a ghastly sight for us to look upon that has Bill and Nancy in it. But by there, shutting out the sight with his hand, we're also being asked within those two sentences to think about what it looks like with him, so ghastly that he can barely look on it. Within two sentences, you've got click-clack, very, very, very fast cutting of point of view. Very few film directors managed to bring that off, even though it seems such an essentially cinematic um, thing to do. And indeed, it, it, it's followed um, by, I think, what Eisenstein would identify um, as a close-up. Sorry, I don't know, which is where, um, I think I've got it on the, the handout, at the bottom of the first page, though, which is where the next day, disgusted by what he does, um, Bill thrusts the club that he's killed Nancy with into the fire, and you get an extreme close-up, sorry, it's not in there, where you get the human hair and blood at the end of the club fizzling in the fire. So you've gone to a kind of extreme close-up to that physical detail. Uh, and I can't uh, uh, escape adding that that scene is followed by a very, very typically Dickensian change of tone. Not so much a question of point of view, but change of tone, where Bill escapes from the scene because he literally can't bear to be near what forces the image of Nancy's death onto his eye. He goes to a pub, and in the pub he encounters a man who's selling a universal stain remover, and he snatches his hat and starts to tell the assembled people in the club that this will remove any stain. And the word stain is repeated in the passages before. And what's very typical about Dickens there is what you've experienced as grotesque tragedy recurs as farce just a few pages later. That's very, very typical of the kind of tonal uh, changes. Now, this is obviously technically um, important, but what difference does it make to our experience of the books? Well, it's actually one of the ways in which sympathy is generated from the book. We find ourselves aligned with particular characters, but also find our sympathies thrown about as we're putting one point of view rather than the other. And the, the, I think there's a very good example of this uh, from the end of um, 
Oliver Twist. And what's interesting about it is actually its crudeness in terms of the novel as a whole. This is the point where Fagan comes into the dock uh, to be tried. And the thing about Fagan's treatment in the novel is that he's, he's a kind of caricature figure to the point where people accused uh, Dickens of anti-Semitism in, in his account of Fagan. He's not a character whose interiority or, or even whose point of view we're much granted. And then near the end of the novel, we get this incredible scene. And I don't have time to go about length. It is another, it's another scene which you might play with, with a highlighter pen about where it changed. But the court was paved from floor to roof with human pages, with human faces. Sorry, that's my literary imagination in interfering there. And that is asking you to see, in a room much like this, the camera up there, you are the people in the court. I'm Fagin in the dock where my mother said I would end up. Um, it looks like that, that's what we're getting. The court was paved from floor to roof with human faces. Inquisitive and eager eyes peered from every inch of space. From the rail before the dock, away into the sharpest angle of the smallest corner in the galleries. All looks were fixed upon one man, the Jew. Before him and behind, above, below, on the right and the left, he seemed to stand surrounded by a firmament, all bright with beaming eyes. Now, what it seems to me... Um, you start to get there is you get this ricochet of glances but you start to get a movement from the camera being up there to what it feels like what it seems like to be Fagan standing in the dark being subjected to those glances he stood there in this glare of living light with one hand resting on the wooden slab before him the other held to his ear you're being now encouraged to think about his own sensory experiences his head thrust forward to enable him to catch with greater distinctness every word that fell from the presiding judge who was delivering his charge to the jury. At times, he turned his eyes sharply upon them. You move from this objective point of view to, to where you've got, he turned his eyes. We are being now told this is what he sees. Exactly where that happens in what precedes it is the game you can play with your highlighter. Where do we think we're now looking out um, uh, there's, there's a, I, I can't see it now, but there's a, there's, a, there's a use of the word seems in that passage somewhere, which I think is very important because it always opens up the possibility of seems seem to him, you know, seems to me or did it indeed seems to, seems to him. The word seems always cues you to think this is somebody's impressions because the objective narrator, as it were, ought to know, but the character, to a character it may seem. What's interesting, I think, about this passage is that it's rather clunky in terms of the way sympathy is being generated from a character who's not treated that sympathetic in the novel. It's a kind of one-off. In Dickens's mature fiction, this kind of suddenly turning the moral sympathies of the novel around, so a character who looks villainous or unsympathetic, we're suddenly given their point of view, is dispersed and much more part of the fabric of the novels. Here, it, it, in a way, feels a rather sudden effect for a character who we're not actually given that much, whose point of view we're not actually given that much of. But I think it's actually very, very typical of these kind of um, transitions um, in Dickens. Now, I, I, I don't have time to talk about all the passages um, in, on the handout, but I want to end talking about this. Now, 
it seems to me that um, one of the things I've, I've talked about is the way that point of view changes in Dickens, but also in the way it's not always completely clear how it's changed, when we've got a removed camera uh, where we haven't. And I think that causes problems for film adaptations of Dickens, because it's very hard to translate, or it's tended to be difficult to translate, what we might call undecidability. You know, that, that sense that we're not quite sure from where we're looking. And that's related to another effect of Dickens, which is his writing is often very interested in things being haunted by the past, as with that dissolve image I showed you at the beginning, that things happen, and while they're happening, there's a penumbra of things that have happened elsewhere. There's a sort of ghostliness. Now, I, I'm one of those people who balks at the idea of Dickens as a realist, partly for that reason. He's, he's not only a kind of fantasist because a lot of his plots are fairy tale, but his basic technique tends to be about the way that we can't just be sh have a camera pointed and be shown what things are in any singular sense. The present is always actually haunted by the past. Film adaptations struggle with that. Partly it's a technical thing. How do you deal with the fantastic? W what tends to happen is undecidability in Dickens is resolved into realism. The BBC's approach to Dickens is to spend as much money on mud as you can and make it look like how terrible the 19th century was. But actually using the kind of effects that you might do with CGI of actually scenes that are kind of real and unreal at the same time um, is difficult. I'll, gi I'll give you one fairly simple example from our mutual friend uh, of an aspect of Dickensian point of view that's hard to translate into film. Uh, I should say that my favourite example, which isn't this one, is, is from the same novel, which is where um, a wonderful scene in which uh, Silas Wegg goes into a shop to buy, his own, to, to buy the bone of his own amputated leg back from a man who's, who, who builds skeletons for medical students. Uh, and there's a fantastic description of actually embryos of, of babies in bottles and they start spinning or it's as if they were spinning. You know? And filmmakers by and large just don't go there. You know? It's a metaphor, let's leave it aside. But it's crucial to the sense of the fantastic in, the, in this novel. But this is the very powerful beginning of the novel. Very visual, but I want you to notice something about it. The figures in this boat were those of a strong man with ragged, grizzled hair and a sun-brown face and a dark girl of 19 or 20, sufficiently like him to be recognisable as his daughter. The girl rode pulling a pair of schools very easily. The man with the rudder line slack in his hands and his hands loose in his waistband kept an eager lookout. You already get a thematization of looking. He had no net, hook or line and he could not be a fisherman. His boat had no cushion for a sitter, no paint, no inscription, no appliance, beyond a rusty boat hook and a coil of rope. And he could not be a waterman. His boat was too crazy and too small to take in cargo for delivery. And he could not be a lighterman or river carrier. There was no clue to what he looked for, but he looked for something with the most intent and searching gaze. The tide which had turned an hour before was running down and his eyes watched every little race and eddy in its broad sweep as the boat made slight headway against it or drove stern foremost before it, according as he directed his daughter by a movement of his head. She watched his face as earnestly as she watched the river, but in the intensity of her look, there was a touch of dread or horror. Now, we've already got in small, there's something we've already talked about, which is scenes made up of exchanges of glances. He looks at the river, she looks at him, right? But what I also want you to see is something that would cause difficulty for any filmmaker. You've got a description defined entirely by what it is not. He was not this, he was not that, he was not this. How do you film that? 
<laughs> it's very, very difficult. The BBC adaptation of Amnesia Friend, which is one of those that tends to resolve into realism, or as in its, its version of Mr. Venus's shop, into tight close-up and go for character acting. Here, they did something quite clever. They shoot in silhouette, so that all you see are actually the dark outlines backlit against a dark river, and it's an attempt to do that. But it's a real problem uh, of how to do it. And um, Sorry, that's, that's carries on the same, but it's this section I want to look at. This is the end of the chapter. Those of you who read the novel will know that the reason she has a look of horror on her face is because their job is to uh, trawl dead bodies from the river and go empty their pockets and take their money. Uh, but you're never told that in this opening chapter. Uh, there's an exchange between her father and one of his competitors on the river, and then the chapter ends like this. Lizzie's father, composing himself into the easy attitude of one who had asserted the high moralities and taken an unassailable position, slowly lighted a pipe and smoked and took a survey of what he had in tow. You, you still don't know. That's what is important. What he had in tow lunged itself at him sometimes in an awful manner when the boat was checked and sometimes seemed to try to wrench itself away, though for the most part it followed submissively. A neophyte, a newcomer, might have fancied that the ripples passing over it were dreadfully like faint changes of expression on a sightless face. But Gaffer was no neophyte and had no fancies. You're still not being told, but this is the body coming behind the boat, and every time the boat stops, the body seems to lunge forward. And if you looked, and were, and were somebody taking the strength, you might look and see the changing expression on its face as it looks at you. Deeply visual imagery, but how do you film the body that you're not meant to know a body and the changes of expressions on a face which can't change its expressions. That seems to me the cinematic Dickens, but it's, an, it's, it's a cinematic Dickens that very few people in the cinema have ever been able to capture. Thank, thanks very much.